Does more medicine lead to better outcomes? One of the country's leading academic physicians says no. Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and I'm joined today by Dr. H. Gilbert Welch, author of Less Medicine, More Health. Gil, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you. So what motivated you to write this book? Well, you know, a lot of docs have been worried about the problems caused by too much medical care. In fact, there was a recent survey of primary care physicians in the United States, and nearly half thought their patients got too much care. So I wanted to communicate the nuances of medical care, that while it can do a lot of good in selected settings, it can also do harm. And I wanted folks to understand that nuance and understand some of the assumptions that drive people and physicians to provide too much care. So you broke it down into seven assumptions? I did. So the first one you talked about, all risk can be lowered. I guess that's not true, right? Risk can't always be lowered, but the real problem is that trying can create risks of its own. And I'm talking about efforts, say, to lower someone's blood pressure, which can be very, very important, can also lower it too much. And so we have to be careful about finding the balance. And the same is true for blood sugar. We've probably gotten too focused on blood sugar. And when we had a randomized trial of intensive blood sugar control, in fact, we found that actually raised mortality. So we have to be careful about assuming that we can always lower risks and that, that it's a free lunch. We can lower big risks, and it's very important to treat very, very high blood pressure. But it's harder to lower small risks, and the effort of doing so can cause more problems than it solves. And I think the next thing to kind of segue into is problems. I think we, in our technology we have today, we find lots of problems that we didn't know about before. And, and I think your second construct is it's not always better to fix problems, correct? It is not always better to fix problems. Sometimes trying to eliminate a problem can be more dangerous than managing one. And in that chapter, I tell the story of former President George Bush, who felt fine and he's a very active man. He uh, clears brush on his ranch in Texas. He's a mountain biker. He runs. And he went to the doctor and he came out with a balloon and stent. He had uh, some abnormality seen in his coronary artery and ended up getting a balloon and stent, had an angioplasty. And what was interesting about that story is that some American doctors were willing to say exactly what they thought about it in the news media, that this was an example of American medical care at its worst. There was no evidence that doing something like this in an asymptomatic individual will improve their survival. And it's hard to make someone who feels well make them feel any better. Um, it's, just, it, it's hard to make a well person better. But the whole process carries some risk. There is a risk of the procedure itself, and then people are put on uh, drugs to thin their blood, and then they have face an increased risk of bleeding for a year. The reality is all the things that we do in medical care have some harms. Obviously, some have more harms than others. And in a lot of cases, those harms are certainly worth the risk for people who are acutely sick or injured. But for people who are well, sometimes it's just better to leave things alone or, or manage a problem. 
So our third concept is this early diagnosis, and you seem to write a lot about turtles and rabbits. Yeah, yeah. Early diagnosis has been a big part of my career for 25 years, and it's such an appealing construct that it's always better to find problems early, particularly for a fear disease like cancer. We've all been taught, you know, the best way to deal with it is to look for it early. But our understanding of cancer is changing and ironically, it's changing because of the side effects of early detection. And this brings me to the barnyard pen of cancers that you're referring to. And there are three animals in the barnyard. They're the birds, the rabbits, and the turtles. And the goal of early detection is to fence them in, to, to catch them early. But you can't fence in a bird. The bird has already flown away. And these represent the most aggressive cancers, the most fast-growing cancers, the cancers that have already spread by the time they're detectable. And screening doesn't help with the birds. The question is, can you treat the birds? They're the worst cancers. The rabbits are hopping around, and you can catch them if you build enough fences. And these are the more slowly progressive cancers that screening can help with. And then there are the turtles. And the turtles are the cancers that aren't going anywhere anyway. And they're non-progressive cancers. They're, they're lesions that meet the pathologic definition of cancer, but in fact will never bother the patient. And the problem is screening's really good at finding turtles, but doctors aren't good at distinguishing turtles from rabbits, so we tend to treat everybody. And that's the major harm associated with efforts to find cancer early is all of a sudden you treat a whole new group of people and they go through our cancer treatments, which include chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery for a disease that was never going to bother them. And that's the problem of overdiagnosis and it's a problem I've been concerned about, as I said, for about 20 years. So is prostate cancer the ultimate turtle? Prostate cancer is really where most doctors learned about the problem, but not all prostate cancers are turtles. They're rabbits and prostate cancer, too. These animals, if you will, the birds, rabbits, and turtles, exist within all uh, the cancers, but most prostate cancers are turtles. And autopsy studies have shown the men my age and older, I'm 62, over half of us will have some pathologic evidence of prostate cancer. But it's not just about prostate cancer. Thyroid cancer has been a cancer that pathologists have long recognized was a, although it was a very rare cause of death, it's an extremely common finding at autopsy. And when we look hard for early forms of thyroid cancer, we find all sorts of them. And probably the poster child for the problem at a global level has been in South Korea, where they started uh, screening for thyroid cancer at the turn of the century in 2000. And 15 years later, their thyroid cancer incidence rate had increased 15-fold. They have an epidemic, right? Unbelievable. And it is actually now the most common cancer in Korea, more common than lung cancer, more common than breast cancer, more common than colon cancer. And the mortality rate hasn't changed at all. And yet a lot of thyroids are coming out. Now, that doesn't look like an epidemic of disease. That looks like an epidemic of diagnosis. And this is the kind of thing we have to worry about. If we always drive to look for more and more early forms of cancer, we're going to be rewarded by finding them. But that doesn't mean we're helping people. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and I'm joined today by Dr. H. Gilbert Welch, 
author of Less Medicine, More Health. So your next construct you talk about is data. So more data is not always good? Yeah. This is a data-driven world, isn't it? I mean, we're all sort of in love with data. And in some ways, I think this is the information age. And we're all sort of uh, connected to more and more information. And it seems to be the central tenet now of society that it's always good to get more information. But the reality is this tenet conflates uh, data with useful knowledge. And not all data are useful knowledge. And yet there's no limit on the amount of data I can collect on any given patient. You know, there are thousands of bits of metabolic data, various lab tests we can order. There are millions of pixels of imaging data we could be collecting on individuals, and there's three billion data points in our genome. So there's no shortage of data for us. But the reality is that we don't know what a lot of it means. And data overload can start fishing expeditions that lead people to places they'd rather not be. And we call them incidental omas, you know, incidental findings or incidental abnormalities that can begin to distract your doctor from things that are important and can scare patients and can lead to a lot of procedures and ultimately harm. So you wrote about action versus inaction. And I think as I've gotten older as a physician, I'm much more comfortable doing nothing. Yeah. Again, I wanted patients to understand when they're doctor makes a considered decision not to do something, that's really important information. That's good. We shouldn't feel that the only successful visit is one that ends with a prescription or a referral or an order for a test. Sometimes doing nothing is exactly the right thing to do. And particularly when you're considering something that has some pretty high stakes. So this is the chapter I deal with uh, surgery. And of course, all surgery involves trauma and trauma interferes with the body's ability to heal and people can be hurt in the process. Sometimes not undergoing surgery, the case for surgical inaction is something that people really need to consider, particularly for something like back surgery, where it really can cause more problems than it solves. This is a place where encouraging patients to really consider the option of doing nothing. It may be exactly the right thing to do. And with medications, you know, newer is always better, right? Do you want to beta test new software? No. Do you like buying cars in their first model year? No, come on. I think one of the things that happens is we all get excited about new and we always assume new is better. But the reality is in medicine that a lot of new interventions are really not well tested and it may take years, but they'll ultimately be judged to be ineffective or even harmful. And and there's some major examples of that that I go over in the book, but one of the ones that may be familiar to a lot of physicians is the metal-on-metal hip saga which was a brand new device that was supposed to be superior to the original hip replacement, which was a metal on plastic, a plastic liner in the cap. And one of the problems with the so-called Charnley hip that had been around for the 70s is that plastic liner would wear and little bits of plastic would get into the joint space. They were inert. They didn't bother anybody, but sometimes they had to be replaced. So people thought, wow, it'll be great. We're going to make a metal on metal hip so you won't have that problem of plastic wearing. Well, you didn't have the problem of plastic wearing, but now you had the problem of metal wearing. 
and little bits of metal were coming out into the joint. And metal is not inert to the human body. It exerts a powerful inflammatory reaction. And some patients began to develop what the orthopedists called pseudotumors, literally a mass of inflamed tissue, and began to develop pain. Now, that's the reason they had the procedure, was to get rid of pain. But in fact, for some patients, the procedure caused pain that required them to have their hip removed and forced to have a revision, which is a much more difficult surgery. And some patients even got cobalt poisoning from the whole episode, and that interfered with their cardiac function and led to some real problems. So this was a place where, you know, it was an untested new intervention, but it sounded great. It was titanium. It must be good. And it took us a better part of five, 10 years to figure out it was the wrong thing to do. So this is a chapter where I encourage patients when there is a good alternative that is currently working, go with the tried and true. And lastly, you wrote about end of life. Yeah. And I think it's such an important thing. And you know, as physicians, we die differently than patients, correct? Yes, we do. You want to elaborate on that a little bit? I think we've oversold the idea that we can avoid death. And of course, we can't avoid death. We're we're all going to die. But sometimes the effort to avoid death and live longer puts people through hell at the end of life. And I think a lot of doctors understand that point, And that's why we're probably more conservative or many of us are more conservative with ourselves than we would be for our patients. And here I'm trying to help patients understand that there's more to life than just striving to avoid death and that uh, ironically, if you strive too hard to avoid death, first you're going to be unsuccessful, but it will also diminish your life. And so this is a personal chapter. It's a chapter where I acknowledge their value judgments and different people can make different decisions in the same setting. But I want to encourage people to probably not focus uh, so much on the singular question of how long they live and and focus more on how well they live. So if you're going to give some advice to young clinicians who are starting to critically think about things, what would the advice be? Try to help patients find the balance. I think more and more patients are open to the ideas. They understand that medical care has become very commercial, that there are a lot of forces pushing the system to do more and do things that are expensive and may not be in patients' interest. And I'd encourage young physicians to bring patients in on some of the challenges and the ambiguity and acknowledge that medical care has nuances, that some of it is very good, particularly things that we do for people who are acutely injured or acutely sick. We can do a lot for those people. But for others, you know, that the full-on push for more medical care may have two sides, particularly for people who are well. And I think this is a place where physicians can reestablish their role of sort of guiding people through these nuances of healthcare. And it can be a very rewarding process, sort of shepherding people through a system that's gotten very complex and I think errs on the side of doing too much to people. So I think it's a really amazing book. The book is Less Medicine, More Health. I think not just for clinicians, I think this is a great book for patients. And you originally wrote it for patients, correct? I absolutely wrote it for patients. I'd love for 
for physicians to read it, and if they think it reflects the way they think, that they should share it with patients. Put one in the office and encourage those patients who are interested, certainly not all, but patients who are interested to read it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Gil. It's great to be with you, and uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. For more on this series, please tune in to ReachMD.com slash book club. 